Hello, welcome to Songs in the Key Of, a podcast about songs. These might be old songs, new songs or middle-aged songs, anything that takes my fancy really. Sometimes these shows will be themed around an idea, a person, a genre or some other concept. Other times they will simply reflect my latest obsessions. My new favourite bands, those songs I can't get out of my head. This time round I thought I'd explore a bit of a theme. In an alternative universe where Covid-19 was nothing but a meaningless series of letters and numbers, several thousand music fans would be in the midst of gorging themselves silly on the finest music that the Reading and Leeds festivals could offer at the moment. To mark these non-events not passing, I thought I'd indulge in a wander down memory lane to Reading 2000, the first music festival I ever attended at the tender age of 20. Headliners that year were a long past their peak oasis. My university friends Ewan and John ended up eschewing them for Calexico with me. A marvellously on-form pulp and a dull-as-ditch-water stereophonics. Not even the appearance of Tom Jones for a finale of Mama Told Me Not To Come could liven things up. But festivals are far from just about the headline acts. Although I'm going to mention one of them during this podcast, this show is generally devoted to bands that I discovered over the course of those three sunny days in Berkshire. The Delgados played the main stage early on in the Saturday lineup. I remember wandering around the site on my own, getting lured in siren-like by the sound of Emma Pollock's voice. They were promoting their The Great Eastern album, which is probably their finest record, though the follow-up Hate comes a close second. One of the songs they played that day was Thirteen Gliding Principles. Like so many of their songs, there's something of a beautiful, heartbreaking tenderness to the Delgados. The lines from this song are particularly grim, if cryptic. It is, in effect, two songs being sung simultaneously, one by Alan Woodward, the other by Emma Pollock. But lyrics like, you hit the ground without a sound, you planned it from the start, drive the point of the song home very clearly. There are times in most other Delgado songs where a message of hope, however small, glimmers through the telling of their melancholy. Here, though, there is little in the way of letter. The build-up of the strings acquires a violence as the tune progresses, representing all manner of turbulence and torment in the mind of the song subject. It's an intense, intense song, but one that feels so... necessary. Which partly explains why, this week at least, The Great Eastern is one of my favourite albums of all time. As I mentioned just now, Pulp headlined Reading on the Saturday night in 2000 
And looking at their set lists, they did something rather bold. They did that thing headline acts are not supposed to do, which is to play something off their new album, which they did four times. If you want the statistics on it, which I'm sure you don't, there were two songs from His and Hers, four from Different Class, their big album, four from their tricky How Do You Follow That album, This Is Hardcore, and a further four from the then forthcoming album We Love Life. It was, we didn't know this at the time, to be their last. That means, and I'm sure you won't thank me for doing the maths here, 28.57% of their headlining set was devoted to songs that only the people on stage had heard before. Not that it mattered. I loved it. I vaguely remember that we stood quite near the back of the crowd watching the band while a group of other festival goers set fire to Wooden Pallet. One song in particular leapt out at me and that was Sunrise. Although the sun had only relatively recently set rather than risen, it felt like one of those perfect festival songs. A perfect festival moment. I always think of the excellent and rather overlooked pulp finale as being a very post 9-11 album. The title in particular was changed in light of the terrorist attack from Pulp Loves Life and then simply Pulp to something that sounded a bit more all-encompassing and inclusive. With that in mind, songs like Sunrise feel like a response of positivity and unity to an awful international event. So it seems a little odd to think that these songs were actually written before the 11th of September. It's a song of hope and redemption, of second chances, about embracing the present and its possibilities instead of avoiding it. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. I used to hate the sun Because it shone on everything I've done Made me feel that all that I had done Was overfill the ashtray of my life You can't go wrong with Shaq And that point was easily proven true With Mick Head and Co's appearance at the festival that year Listen to comedy if you don't believe me It's eloquent and mesmerising and altogether wonderful A perfect, perfect perfect marriage of lyrics and music. Oh, the awful title belies the quality of the song you hear. Comedy is the same for you and me. And the days and nights you remembered me, the walls I never see. Here's some fascinating facts about Ben and Jason. The indie folk duo, who should most certainly not be mistaken for a couple of frozen dessert manufacturers, were actually the pair behind Martin McCutcheon's soul hit, Perfect Moment. Their liner notes proved fascinating, as they listed things like a chest of drawers under the instruments used in their recordings. Also, since the pair parted ways, Jason Hazley, for clarity that's the Jason out of Ben and Jason, has since gone on to become a comedy writer, creating scripts for the likes of Mitchell and Webb, Armstrong and Miller and Philomena Kunk. Back in 2000, 
while they were still in the earlier days of their career as a duo, I remember their appearance being a particularly magical set. Gentle, whimsical and altogether lovely. They'd have been playing songs like Adam and Lorraine, which is as delicate and beautiful as you could hope a song to be. Fragile descending pianos, gorgeous harmonies and thick, rich acoustic guitar chords. Someone sent a purple Ronnie Song I love her in wood Someone left the family business Someone had a hat for a group Someone rolled the daily papers Someone dug a pond in the lawn Someone showed the music kitchen Some of us were ready to go And we played out Aside from Calexico, see last week's episode for further details, Clear Lake were my big discovery of Reading 2000. While my mate John was lolling around in a goofy, drunken stupor, I was completely entranced by the band. My favourite song of theirs, Treat Yourself With Kindness, didn't even exist at that point. But the songs from their debut, Lido, which they were performing at Reading, were still jaw-dropping. The kind of songs that suck you in and make you forget about the rest of the world for a few minutes. Jumble Sailing was just such a song. A dreamy song about wandering around a bring and buy sale with a loved one. Clear Lake didn't make jumpers. But if they had, they'd probably have been the coziest, warmest jumpers in the world. We'll go jumble sailing Granddaddy were a bit of a discovery for me at Reading too. I knew of them because Ewan and John had been talking about them, and as I generally viewed them as having a cooler taste in music than me, Ewan in particular, I was interested in knowing more. Granddaddy had a fascinating distinctive sound. Charlie Brooker thought so too, as the opening credits for his early series of Screenwipe featured AM180. Their current album, at the time of Reading 2000, was an excellent quasi-concept album wrapped around the theme of technology and societal decay. To be honest, I'm not sure what technology was really causing societal decay back then. In 2000, cassette tapes were still being widely used, most people were still having to use dial-up modems, and the concepts of social media video conferencing and dating on Tinder were still things of the far-flung future. Hewlett's daughter bumbles along at its own speed with some fascinating instrumentation. Keyboards are always tested to their limits on a granddaddy song, and there's some fantastic snippets of drumming on there, but the lyrics... It's some kind of post-apocalyptic vision of a flooded landscape with sofas floating down the road while bandits run around stealing guns from one another. This is what Cormac McCarthy would sound like if he'd only picked up a synthesizer instead of a pen. Thanks. 
There is some music in this world that will forever be linked with the circumstances of the artist's life and, more significantly, death. Kurt Cobain, Nick Drake, Amy Winehouse, Janis Joplin, John Lennon, there are plenty more. Another of those artists is Elliot Smith, who played Reading at the turn of the millennium to a hushed yet enthusiastic crowd. He just released his fifth, and quite possibly best, album, Figure Eight. It turned out to be the last album released during his lifetime. It's a gorgeous, understated album where melodies and harmonies swim around one another. There's a lingering melancholy throughout, but it is fundamentally a beautiful album. At the heart of that beautiful album is happiness, a narrative about unhappy people lying to themselves and each other in a doomed pursuit of meaning, joy and contentment. Musically, it is astounding. So when you discover the depth and intricacy of the lyrics on top, you cannot help but be blown away. Elliot Smith was a far from happy man. He ended up taking his own life in October 2003. Sometimes there's a romanticism associated with musicians who kill themselves like they lived and died for their art. That's the sort of cult that has sprung up around the likes of Ian Curtis, Kurt Cobain and Richie Edwards. But the truth is more grim and dark than that. It's the bleak, bleak end to an awful, troubled existence from which the person doing it can see no escape. There are ways out. There are escape routes involving talking, therapy and medication. By no means does it have to end like it did for Elliot Smith. All I can say is, if you're feeling like that, talk to someone. You may not think anyone wants to listen to you, but you'd be surprised how many people out there want you to stay alive. Despite the name of his album, the year 2000 was not the year of the Wildebeest. It was actually the year of Badly Drawn Boy. At least that's what it seemed to me. 
That was the year in which he won a Mercury Award for his debut album. In the lead-up to us seeing him at Reading, as the final weeks of our first year at Lancaster University hove into view, I remember John, Ewan and myself marching into Preston's MVC, each queuing up to buy the album. In my case, the purchase was washed down with a Gene Live at the Troubadour chaser. These, I think you'll agree, are all important details. Back then, Badly Drawn Boy held a very dominant position in our minds, something that seems quite difficult to understand now in retrospect. He had a rather shambolic charm, wearing a woolly hat that reminded me a lot of one of my grandmother's hand-knitted tea cosies. The air of shamble was only added to by the fact that during his Reading set, he frequently forgot where he was in a song and had to start again several times during Magic in the Air. According to a very helpful website called setlist.fm, Damon Goff didn't actually play my favourite song from his badly drawn boy canon. It came from the ground, had been released as a standalone single some time before his album and it still remains the best thing he's ever done. So instead I'll plump for Pissing in the Wind, a beautiful tender tune which you may remember was accompanied by a video in which Joan Collins lip synced to the song while getting ready for a night out. It's a song all about doubts and trying hard and risking failure, a kind of if at first you don't succeed kind of mentality. Call it cheesy, call it schmaltzy, call it whatever you like, but it's also bloody lovely. I've been pissing in the wind I chanced a foolish grin And dribbled on my chin Now the ground Shifts beneath my feet The faces that I greet Never know my name Just give me some In the last month or so, Clinic Sartorial USP has become so bland as to become boringly everyday in a dystopian end of the world is nigh kind of way. When they first took to wearing surgical face masks it was, obviously, a deliberately pretentious look designed to raise eyebrows. These days, well, we just wouldn't bat an eyelid, would we? When I saw Clinic perform songs from their distorted feedback-driven first album, I didn't really get them. In fact, I didn't get them so much that almost as soon as I'd got back, taken a well-deserved shower and caught up on some much-needed sleep, I trotted down to Gloucester's MVC, to buy a copy of Internal Wrangler. Even then I still didn't get them and the CD has remained largely unplayed in my CD collection to this day. Revisiting it, I'm not quite sure what the problem was. The distortion and feedback is far less prominent than I remember it being and you can't even accuse them of being unmelodic. Don't get me wrong, Clinic are unlikely to be soundtracking the next Richard Curtis Penn rom-com anytime soon but I do find their music far more approachable than I thought it was. One song that particularly stuck out, even back then, was The Return of Evil Bill, which opens with that unearthly melodica melody before descending into chugging guitar chords and a washed-out sound that suggests a band of surf rockers have returned to haunt us from beyond the grave. 
It's bouncy and fun and creepy and weird all at the same time. You know, after all this time, I think I really do like them after all. Darkstar. Remember Darkstar? Did Darkstar remember Darkstar? Wikipedia helpfully informs me that they were active between 1996 and 2001, which places my encounter with them both at the peak and near the end of their career. There was something very alluring about Darkstar. They sounded just like the sort of band a student should like. Dark, Gritty, noisy, mildly pretentious lyrics like Jesus was my age when he got nailed. Watching them on the evening session stage, it felt like they'd broken away from a particularly interesting seance just to perform the set for us. In particular, I loved the I Am The Sun song, where that lyric about getting nailed comes from. It felt intense and primal and enlivening. It's kind of a shame that they didn't last much longer. It looks like some sort of disagreement with their record label a few months after their appearance at Reading brought an end to the band. Still, there's always their album 2020 Sound, which, given the year we're in, should probably be getting a bit more of an airing at the moment. So there you have it, 10 songs to mark 20 years since my first festival experience. Looking through some of these songs I've selected it sounds like a gloomy experience but it really wasn't at all. Looking through the lineup list there were quite a few exciting then up and coming acts that I'd missed. Elbow for example had a very early slot on the Carleen premiere stage, the smallest stage at the festival. Lauren Laverne was there in a brief post-Kanicki pre-broadcasting career solo slot and I was a bit of a fool for missing cheering breaks too. Never mind, there will, I hope, one day be an opportunity to spend another few days wandering around a muddy field discovering the next Delgado's, Custo or Shack. I hope you enjoyed the self-indulgence. If you feel like being self-indulgent yourself, please do tweet me using at reviewage with memories of your own first festival experiences. Who knows, maybe we were at Reading 2000 together. In the meantime, have a good old few days and nights until our paths cross again. Oh,